WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Welcome. I am your host, Quinn Hoffman, and you are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM, Michigan State University's student-run news program. Tonight on the show, we talk about food trucks, squirrels, pop-up project, a uh, art exhibition happening all summer long, and we pull an old interview we did with a beer podcast from the vault with Daniel Razel. All that's coming up, but first, here's your weekly news update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will return in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly Impact update. Cleanup efforts started today in Portland after an EF1 tornado with winds up to 100 miles per hour hit yesterday afternoon. The twister damaged several buildings, churches, and destroyed about 70 homes. Five people were rescued from collapsed buildings. Three of those rescued include a mother and two children who were trapped inside a Goodwill. The tornado formed quickly, and no warning was issued until after the twister touched down. Jim Masco of the National Weather Service in Grand Rapids said the tornado in Portland was virtually undetectable on radar. Also known as a pop-up tornado, Masco told the press these storms are very common in Michigan. The Portland tornado was Michigan's second confirmed tornado of the year. On average, Michigan sees nine tornadoes from January through June, with this month traditionally being the most active of the year. Emergency officials asked non-residents to stay away from Portland so the cleanup work can continue. Damage in Portland is still under assessment. No deaths or serious injuries have been reported. Next, we go to Impact reporter Rebecca Ryan with the status between the U.S. and Russia. Because of NATO's concerns over Russia's role in Ukraine, the U.S. announced new artillery deployment across Europe. U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter said that the countries to be holding this artillery will be Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. According to BBC News, the artillery would include 250 tanks, Bradley fighting vehicles, and self-propelled Howitzer artillery guns. Russian President Vladimir Putin has condemned these actions, accusing NATO of, quote, coming to our borders. With your international news, I'm Rebecca Ryan. Now, Jack Montgomery with a rising ban in the nation. Today, leading vendors Walmart, Amazon, eBay, and Sears have stopped the sale of Confederate flag merchandise. This decision arises after a string of bans on the flag in the state of Virginia, South Carolina, and Texas. Days after the Supreme Court ruled it constitutional, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe banned state-sponsored plates with the Confederate flag. On Monday, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley called for the removal of the Confederate flag from state capitol grounds. In her address to a crowd Monday, Republican Governor Haley said, Today we are here in a moment of unity in our state without ill will to say it is time to move the flag from the capitol grounds. Support from state leaders around the country to phase out the flag have taken new heights since a hate-filled shooting in a historic African-American church last week. Since the tragedy, images surfaced of the young white supremacists holding the Confederate flag. With your national news, I'm Jack Montgomery. Finally, we go to Michaela Harris, who reports on a swift decision made by Apple. On Monday, Apple announced that they would pay royalties to artists during the three-month trial of their new music streaming service. The announcement came after pop superstar Taylor Swift wrote an open letter to Apple on her Tumblr page, sharing it with her 59 million followers. 
Apple Music is set to launch worldwide by June 30th, but the company had planned to pay artists zero royalties during the free trial. We don't ask for free iPhones, Swift wrote. Please don't ask us to provide you with our music for no compensation. Roughly 24 hours after Swift's letter was posted, Apple executive Eddie Q tweeted, Apple will pay artists for streaming, even during customers' free trial period. We hear you, Taylor Swift and indie artists. Love, Apple. With your entertainment news, I'm Michaela Harris. This has been your weekly update. I've been Audrey Matus. Now back to Exposure. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. To start off the show tonight, Audrey Matus will sit down with some of the people behind Purple Carrot, a food truck business around Okemos and Lansing. The Purple Carrot is a Michigan's first farm-to-truck food stand. It's kind of stationed between Okemos and East Lansing. And I'm sitting down with one of the co-owners, Nina Santucci, correct? That's correct. And we're going to talk more about what this food truck has brought to Lansing and sort of the story behind it. So thank you for sitting down with me today, Nina. Thank you for having me. So the Purple Carrot is part of the farm-to-truck, farm-to-table kind of movement. Can you explain what this movement is and Purple Carrot's mission? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for us, when we opened the food truck, the start of kind of sourcing local came from the want to have the best food possible. And so we figured if we were getting things that were picked within the past couple of days, it's going to taste significantly better than something that was picked a couple weeks, sometimes months, years ago even. Um, So that's kind of how it started. And then as we began to develop relationships with different farmers, it really turned into a lot more than that. And we became pretty engrossed in the whole local food movement, things like that. And it just became kind of a a much bigger thing than we ever could have imagined um, with kind of the community that we've, we've become a part of. Can you explain kind of the uh, menu style, what kind of meals you guys create? Yes. So um, on the food truck, it's pretty fun because we change the menu every single week. So every Monday we get together, my husband and I, and kind of go over the harvest list of what we're getting in that week and different things that we can use. And the menu unfolds from there. So if we know, for example, this week we're getting a pig in that we're going to have probably some pork butt that we can use at the food truck then that can start the first sandwich. And everything kind of trickles off from that as we kind of pull different ingredients for different sandwiches or different soups we're doing. Um, you know, Then we kind of get to the end and say, okay, well, we haven't used tomatoes yet and we still need a vegetarian sandwich. What can we do? And then we can kind of come up with something from there. And it's always kind of a fun, creative process. Right. You guys, I've noticed you guys like to cater to all different dietary needs and things. Yeah. When we first opened, um, there was a, and still I think in a sense is a pretty big void for good vegetarian food. And people who are vegetarian, they find that when they go to a restaurant that's not necessarily vegetarian focused, you know, you, you can get kind of an afterthought. So it might be, you know, buttered noodles with vegetables, which is fine. But when you're going out to eat, you know, you want to be able to have that same experience that your friend who eats everything has. And so for us as non-vegan and vegetarians, it's really, I think, kind of pushed us a little bit to explore that world um, and, and make things that we think are satisfying, whether or not that's the lifestyle you choose to follow. And also, you guys both have a gourmet cooking experience, right? What was that like? Um I met Tony when I was in college. Um, I was a server in a restaurant where he was one of the chefs. And that was the first restaurant where I was really exposed to kind of fine dining food. And I grew up in an Italian family, loving food, and um, has always been a big part of my life. But I never really was exposed to fine fare and, and kind of what that means. And that's where I met Tony. And so the two of us certainly bonded over a love of food and as me as a, a big food consumer it was pretty nice to have a chef as a boyfriend looking to impress me so um we basically from there 
kind of spent the next 10 years of our lives together moving around the country. Um, and it was great because as a chef, you can pretty much get a job in, in any city you want to. So I was able to kind of move around through him um, and, and experience kind of a lot of great towns through their food. So we spent time in Austin, Texas, and Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. And his focus and emphasis has always been working in kitchens, whereas I've always been doing things more in the front of the house, whether that was serving or managing restaurants, uh, working in wedding planning and things like that. And so certainly the two of us have, have spent most of our relationship um, centered around food of some some way, shape, or form. And so like, when did you guys feel like you wanted to change your craft a little bit from prices more for your husband when you guys decided you want to leave the gourmet industry and make it kind of your own food business? We were most recently living in Philadelphia. Um, a friend of ours had purchased a restaurant, and it was a really neat kind of special restaurant. It was all um, like a tasting menu. So you would go in and you would order two or three different dishes, and then what you would get was a 14-course meal, all little kind of surprise bites after the next. And it was a wonderful experience. We loved it. But we had realized that, that we were ready to, to kind of take on our own um, restaurant. That was always something that we wanted to do was open our own restaurant. And I grew up in Michigan. My family still lives here and is uh, pretty connected in the agriculture of Michigan. And we knew that what we wanted to do was going to be seasonally focused. And so Michigan seemed like a great place as far as the ingredients you're working with to come to. But I hadn't been here in about 10 years. So coming back to East Lansing, having been in these big food towns, was a huge kind of shocker to me where I, I just noticed so many chain restaurants and the food truck essentially was an experiment because we thought this would be a good place. It seemed like there was a need for this type of food, but we weren't sure if there was a want for it. And so we opened the food truck with the intentions of being in East Lansing for a couple of months and then going up to Traverse City for a couple of months. Pretty much after the first week of being open here, we just hit the ground running and we never looked back. There was no reason to, to leave and go up to Traverse City. And so we were able to um, kind of grow our business with a food truck, which allowed us to launch the restaurant Red Haven after that, which was had we just opened the restaurant first, it probably would have been a giant failure because um, no one knew who we were, or what we were all about. And so the food truck really was was almost a means to an end. But we just in the meantime, kind of fell in love with it and, and obviously to this day are still continuing to run it. How do you feel like food trucks change a community or how do they add to a community and make it, maybe that's cooler, if <laughs> use that phrase? Well, I think for one thing, it, it brings people outside. It's amazing. Here in Michigan, we have just a handful of months where it's nice out. And again, kind of to come back to the restaurant, we have a patio. And the second it's nice out, I want everyone to sit on the patio because that's the only way I get to be outside. And surprisingly, everyone wants to go inside. And it's like one after the next. I'm like, really? You sure you don't want to sit out here? It's so nice. But I think with the food truck, everyone's outside. And it promotes this kind of communal energy. You're waiting in line. You don't you know what you're going to order. And you start talking to the person in front of you. And that doesn't seem to happen at the restaurant. Not to say that no one's ever talked to someone at the table next to them. But you don't have that kind of shared community as you do. At the food truck, we set up a couple picnic tables. And everyone, you know, you just sit where there's a spot. You may not know the person next to you. And so many conversations are sparked up and it's casual and you can bring a blanket and set up a little picnic. You know, it just kind of it just kind of creates this energy where you can see it. You can drive by and you can see all these people and whether or not you stop, you know, it's kind of nice to see people outside and not just all cooped up where they're hidden like we get all winter long. <laughs> right. 
Um, I know when I stopped by your food truck today at the Meridian Farmer's Market, and I had your breakfast enchilada. Uh-huh. It was fantastic. I made a mess of myself, but it was good food. <laughs> um, but the idea of social networking, I was asking the people that were there, you know, making conversation, how did you hear about the Purple Care? And a lot of times it was just like, I don't, I don't know. I just kind of saw it one day or some, so-and-so told me about it. So how important would you say social networking is to your business, and how do you guys spread the word? Um, when we first opened up, if it hadn't been for social networking, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be having this conversation. It was huge to, to our opening. Um, but I would say now things have changed a little bit. I think that your outlets for social media have kind of shifted. When we first opened up, it was 100% Twitter and Facebook, and Everything that I posted on Twitter or Facebook, every one of my followers saw it was just a much more engaged community. Whereas now with with the, you know, Facebook filters and things like that, I can I can post something to my, our over 6000 followers and then it shows you it's it's feed, you know, how many people saw it and it'll say 60, you know, which is just nuts that like one percent of the people and myself who makes these posts every day get rarely does it come into my Facebook feed. I'm like, how does Facebook not know I'm interested in seeing this? I'm the one that's like checking in every day. So I think that as it's changed, we're trying to learn how to adapt um, to keep ourselves, you know, in the the public discussion. Things like Instagram, I think, have become more important for us and other outlets. Um, and it's kind of a continual process of, of changing and making sure that we can stay relevant and in, in people's minds because we can't tap into them quite as easily as we could four years ago. In regards to the purple carrot, when have you felt like you guys were really giving something to the community? You know, I think one thing that I really like about the food truck is that this is now our fifth season and the people who come to the truck have been so loyal and they've been coming since the first season. And, you know, you watch these families grow and you watch, you know, your favorite customer, all of a sudden she comes with a little belly and then the next season she comes back with a baby And then now, you know, the people, the babies are requesting cake pops and they're pointing to the purple carrot. And I think to really kind of see these these people grow and to be a part of their lives is pretty special. Um, I think for a lot of people who live in this area, the purple carrot has become part of the the summer staple where, you know, what summer's coming when the truck comes back out. And I think that's just kind of a neat thing is to be a part of these people's, you know, the fabric of this community and to watch it kind of unfold is is pretty neat you know and you'll meet people and they'll have no idea who you are and, and they might mention something about the truck or whatever else and it's like oh okay that's cool you know it's that's that's pretty nice is that I think people are happy to have us a part of their daily lives mm-hmm. and that's in the kind of Oak and Missy Sansing area you've established yourself pretty mm-hmm. well and I know we we're kind of talking about earlier when we were coming down here talking about the regulations of food trucks but not everyone else heard that so why haven't you guys made more of a um I don't know, more of a presence in Lansing. Well, so Lansing specifically, they do not allow food trucks in what's considered their downtown district. So we can go out, outside of the downtown district, um, but the kind of high traffic area, we're not able to be there. So uh, we have done uh, a few, like we've done Old Town before and, and a few places kind of outside of that. We went to St. Lawrence Hospital for one summer for a couple of months. Um, but it's... It's hard to not be in those high traffic areas and make it worth your time. Um, so for us, you know, we've been really welcome and embraced in these areas. And since we know we can park there and we're not going to get shut down, we'll continue to do that. But it would be great. We do um, a farmer's market in downtown Lansing. It's three times a summer right in front of the Capitol. 
And it's just such a neat thing. I mean, there's just there's a couple of food trucks that come. There's about 50 plus farmers from across the state. And I wish that we could be down there more because I, I think that food trucks create a vibrancy to cities. And the problem is that a lot of people have with them is that they, they feel that they're almost a threat where they don't want that competition coming into town. And for me, I, I own a brick and mortar and I own a food truck. And if someone said, I want to park our food truck in front of your restaurant, do you care? I would not care. That To me, that brings business. To me, I think it's two completely different experiences. And I think it would be great for these towns to encourage, you know, more people coming down. They're bringing a little bit more life to the city and making it a more walkable, fun place to be. Um, but they're not there yet. So it would be great if uh, in the life of the Purple Carrot, it gets to see a more strong presence down there. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I was also thinking about um, today, how just having making this great food, organic, fresh food, accessible to this in the city area. I mean, yes, the prices are a little up there. So people like that are in like more impoverished areas, they don't have that much access to fruits and vegetables. It could maybe lead to something. For sure. And stuff. I think, you know, if, we're just one truck. So sure. I think the one thing that you see with food trucks is that a lot of them are startup people who are trying to do something. They're, a lot of them use local sourcing and things like that. And I think that making it more accessible certainly is a great thing. You know, I think that small entrepreneurs and not everyone, you know, there's there's food trucks that, that sell, you know, tacos for $2. You know, there's things that can be done. And I think giving people an option that maybe didn't come from a chain restaurant. Like, I think we should encourage that. I think that's a good place to, to kind of try to, to steer ourselves. Um, and yeah, I think all of those things being more accessible, you know, everyone knows how, where they can find a burger for 99 cents, but it would be nice if, if maybe they had other options that were also accessible. Great. I feel like maybe, do you consider yourself a bit of an artist when it comes to food or just, how you visualize your concept of your truck? I would say Tony, my husband, is probably more the artist than okay. I am. I have I have a, a million ideas, and I can say, doesn't this sound great? And and I I come up with a lot of the menus on the truck, but I never in my head. And then I tell him, and then the way he puts it out are never the same. He always takes something I've said and he makes it a million times better. And it and continues. I mean, I've I've been watching him cook for over ten years, and he continues to surprise me. And it's just like, how did you know? How did you even think to do that? Like that was amazing. And so I think, truthfully, and he may say something different, but I would say that he's for sure the artist in between the two of us, and I'm kind of more the the numbers person. This food truck, but I think food trucks in general uh, allow them to have a balance between art and commerce. And um, so that's kind of, and you guys kind of embody that idea, perhaps. Absolutely. I mean, we're definitely a, a lot, you know, he's the yin to my yang in a lot of ways. Um, we for sure balance each other out in a, in a million different ways. But as far as, I mean, even like in the restaurant, it's, I've always been front of the house. He's always been back of the house. And we just, we have two different ways of thinking. But when you put them together, they work so much better because we can, you know, feed off of each other and, and our different perspectives. Has this been, for you, maybe as an outsider to the artist, but you're still there, has this been the most kind of profitable way for him to express himself at, like, his ultimate artistic levels? Uh, what we're doing now, no. But okay. theoretically, um, you know, in in theory, yes, it, it could be a, a profitable way for her, him to produce his art. But 
a restaurant owner, especially in a small scale, someone who's who's really focused on local sourcing and high quality ingredients in a town like this, we really can't ever make a lot of money because if we charge what we needed to to make a lot of money, people would just laugh at us and walk away. Mm -hmm. So if we were doing our same concept in another city, we could probably double our prices and no one would bat an eye. And then at that point, maybe, yes, we could we could see a lot of profit. But sure. here in this town, not really. It's a business, and certainly there's a lot of business involved, but we mostly make our decisions based on passion and not necessarily based on what's going to make us the most dollars and cents at the end of the day. And what exactly is that passion, if you could explain it? Um, I think for us, you know, it's it's really about a full dining experience. It's about really good product that's prepared the right way. That's, you know, we work with all of these farmers who we have these relationships with, and they work just as hard as we do, and they put just as many hours as we do, and, and we want to respect what, what their craft is and, and what they give us and make sure that we're treating it appropriately so that people can enjoy it. And we really get our hands on some pretty phenomenal, beautiful things that no one else gets to see because they, you know, they cut the blossoms and we're the only ones that get them or whatever else. And so I think it's part of our job to to then take their art and reinterpret it, put it on a plate for something that's presentable um, and serve it to someone. So we want you to have a fantastic meal. We want you to leave happy and we want your experience to be great, too. You know, not just, you know, the interaction you have with whomever is at the truck window, uh, the people in the line, you know, the whole thing. We want you to enjoy it from start to finish. And so the passion is really just about making the customers happy and have a good time. And we hope that in the way that we package and present it is something that they can enjoy, you know, as, as much as we hope that they will. What does the future kind of hold for the Purple Care? I know you talked a little bit that you want to get involved with the kids' education. I mean, I think theoretically we've always got kind of different things that we'd like to do. And I think if we stay in this town, there's a lot that we can offer this town. There's there's still a lot of things that we could do. So, you know, there's a million concepts I like. You know, Mexican street food has always been something I'd really like to do. I'd, I'd like to do kind of a version of a fast food restaurant that's not straight garbage. You know, I I had a, a fast food place um, in Austin, Texas, and they sourced all of their meat from local farmers. They were using, you know, house cut potatoes for their French fries and nothing crazy. There's nothing unusual about that, but we can't get that. So if you're going to eat a cheeseburger and French fries, why does it have to be so gross? Like, why can't it just be okay? Like, why can't we have something like that? And so I think something like that would, would really make sense because people like the convenience of that type of food, but they don't always have to feel like crap afterwards, I don't think. Awesome. And so how can people learn more about the Purple Carrot? Know, know your locations where you're going to be at. Our website is eatpurplecarrot.com. Every week we post our new menu and our locations. Um, following us on Facebook and Twitter, if um, you do that, is also a great way to have access to, to current things, pictures of food, um, special events that might be coming up and things like that. Um, we do an email list, so if you go to either Facebook or the website, you can sign up for it, and, and that gives you kind of more access to and we do a little bit on Instagram, but that's more the restaurant than the truck. So um, if you're following Red Haven, um, that's Eat Red Haven. So Eat Purple Carrot and Eat Red Haven, you can you can find us in all those places. Great. Well, thank you so much, Nina. And I've had a great time talking with you. And I can't wait to go next eat at the Purple Carrot another time. <laughs> thank you for having me. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I am your host, Quinn Hoffman. Next up, we head back to 2014 when an Impact reporter, 
Alsha Clausen had a question. Can you own a squirrel as a pet? It was a strange question, but as she went on a search for answers, she found some very interesting ones. We see them everywhere, walking to class, outside our dorm windows, or even waiting for the bus. They have those bushy tails and their large brown eyes give squirrels the ultimate awe factor. Here at MSU, the squirrels are not shy. They stare as you walk by, tilting their heads as they examine your hands and search for food. Human biology student Bilal Slaiman recounts, I had like one run across my foot before. In fact, he often interacts with the squirrels he sees skipping around campus. I usually just come out here and like feed them like after I come out of the cab or something. They seem like a lot more friendly and like it's kind of cool that you can get so close to like the wildlife. Unfortunately, Jordan Burroughs, wildlife outreach specialist, does not think this is a good idea. She says wildlife can lose their fear of humans, leading to bold and aggressive behavior. So if you and some of your friends are feeding the squirrels and they get used to that and then another group of people come around to the same area and are not feeding the squirrels, they could potentially get more bold and um, approach humans more closely than they should in hopes of getting some food. Bilal is not the only one who has interacted with the squirrels of MSU. Many students adore them. There's even a Facebook fan page called MSU Squirrels Are Cool. Both students and alumni broadcast their love and enthusiasm for the creatures as they post comments such as, I miss these friendly squirrels, and this is too cute. Some may argue that these squirrels act more like pets than rodents, but should these furry animals be domesticated? MSU Earth Science and Journalism student Carmen Scruggs actually came close to doing just that. I first started this whole like training squirrel uh, freshman year and wonders I lived on the first floor so I noticed a squirrel that lived in the tree across from my window. And like your typical courtship it started kind of slow. I would just throw out like some almonds or some nuts and he would like come over and get them and then over the process of a year he would slowly get closer and closer and then I got him to hop up on my ledge and so Sophomore year, I lived in the exact same room because I reserved it as a single. And then he came back. And their relationship escalated. At that point, uh, I had taken the screen off my window every time he came. And he actually like, knew his name. <laughs> I named him Russell. So I opened up the window and he'd come and I'd feed him. And so toward the end of the year, my sophomore year, I actually was able to have him come into my room and feed him out of my hand. However, Carmen still does not think domesticating squirrels is a good idea. Squirrels are very, you know, for lack of a better word, squirrely. So even though I had trained Russell to come into my room and he had been accustomed to me and was calm, at least for a squirrel, he was still like, you know, jittery and shaky. And if like somebody else were to come in my room, he would totally run out. I think it would kind of be difficult to tame a squirrel, so I don't think it's a good idea because they're just super hyper. Burrow supports this view. They're wild animals. I'm sure they have quite sharp claws and sharp teeth and can definitely be unpredictable. So I would discourage anyone from having a squirrel or any other wild animal as a pet. Burrow says that domesticating squirrels is actually illegal because they are game animals and are protected under a permit issued by the Department of Natural Resources. However, these permits are not issued to allow someone to take a wild animal from the wild and keep it as a pet. Although we cannot cuddle with the squirrels legally, or ever, they are important to the environment. They um, inadvertently help plant forests and other trees when they bury 
those um, those nuts and then um, they turn into seedlings the following spring. So I think focusing on the habitat and what are the habitat needs of the squirrels and then seeing what, or other wildlife in general, and seeing what you can do to enhance that habitat. We can continue to observe their cuteness from afar and keep them around MSU by making sure they have their fresh fruits and seeds to feed on, protecting their shelters, and giving them their space. For Impact News, I'm Alsha Clausen. You are tuned in to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Next up, Audrey Matus talks to some people behind an art exhibition going on all summer long called Project Pop-Up. So Lansing Art Gallery has a project right carrying on right now for the summer called Project Pop-Up. It is a summer art program that makes art accessible to the Lansing area through exhibitions and art projects. So I'm sitting down now with Barb Whitney. She is the executive director at Lansing Art Gallery. Thank you for sitting down with me today, Barb. Thank you for having me today. So first to start off with just kind of explaining a bit more what the um, project pop-up is, maybe in the three groups, if that makes it easier that you have here. Absolutely. Um, the project pop-up, well, it's happening throughout the whole summer in a variety of ways. The first way is through a window art gallery in which we made a call for artists, for Michigan artists specifically, and had an adjudication process or a jury panel that selected artworks, 16 of them, that are on downtown windows. They're very large. You may have seen them downtown. And We've gotten a great response from our downtown demographic uh, because it brings art into an unexpected area for those who may not normally enter the gallery. And those windows, it's not just of the gallery, right? It's, is it throughout Lansing? We have three locations, the, the downtown YMCA, the newly renovated Knapp Center, mm -hmm. and Foster Swift, Collins, and Smith right across from that. Awesome. Um, we're crossing those boundaries into the streets, bringing art into the streets. That's really fun. Great. Another way we're doing that is through a yarn bombing project as a part of Project Pop-Ups. It's a relatively new concept, <laughs> but they're popping up all over the country. People are yarn bombing bridges and waste paper baskets, and you name it, it's being yarn bombed. It's, um, they call it yarn bombing, guerrilla knitting, or urban knitting. Um, and it's a type of graffiti or street art that employs colorful displays of knitted or crocheted yarn or fiber rather than paint or chalk or toilet paper, as it were. <laughs> and so we're, we're bringing art to the people outdoors in unexpected places. And then the third thing is the the series of activities so it's a schedule of events happening wednesdays at noon uh, the first one took place this past wednesday and was a plein air painting activity by local artist mark mahaffey who's from williamston but is international and uh, he essentially curated an opportunity for artists to come and work with him plein air painting in downtown lansing there were i believe 10 of them to come to Lansing Art Gallery to meet here and then to disperse around downtown doing plein air paintings. It was fun because you could watch artists start with a blank canvas and paint outdoors, creating something from life. And I feel like uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, how I community and art is kind of a trend right now in cities that are trying to grow. As in Detroit, we often see this. And I think this is also what's kind of happening in Lansing and through this project. So would you like to speak more a bit more on how art can be used to build a community? 
Absolutely. We are in our 50th year as Lansing Art Gallery, and we're staying 50 years of art and community because we were based, we're a 501c3, a nonprofit organization with a community focus, and that's always been the way our organization has worked. But most recently, I would say in the past five years, a lot of data has come to light from our cultural data project um, that details how the arts are an economic driver, how the arts um, retain and attract talent in a region, and why the economic development corporations like our Lansing Economic Development Corporation should sponsor the arts. Right. So that's, that's part of how this, this um, Sense of Place in the Arts grant was founded, was through the city of Lansing, in partnership with the Lansing Economic Development Corporation, the Lansing Economic Area Partnership, and the Arts Council of Greater Lansing. Is your mission with this project to enhance the community economically or culturally? What's kind of your guys' goal with that? We say the project showcases creativity through community collaboration and that it's designed to activate unexpected downtown spaces with a changing rotation of artful experiences. The way that translates for me from Lansing Art Gallery is that we're on mission, which is our mission's about creating awareness, education, and enjoyment of the visual arts by promoting the works of Michigan artists. And we're able to see that here in downtown Lansing. It's um, we're using the hashtag Love Lansing Art, which is a play on Love Lansing, right. um, developing pride for the region, engaging people in the arts, and having them recognize the value there. Um, maybe, do you have an example of when you felt like uh, you were doing just that? You're kind of enriching the region here, and you're making people kind of like love Lansing through art? We have summer art camp here regularly, and I see that all the time with students, but it was really fun last week with Mark Mahaffey watching him paint. And as an artist myself, I was really taken watching him work and learning from him, seeing how he presented uh, this particular corner on the street in downtown Lansing on canvas. People were walking by, stopping in their tracks, turning around and watching him work. And then even better, he was able to engage them and explain what he was doing, explain his career, so that they're recognizing he's a professional artist making a living at creating and selling art um, and then teaching of course is a, is a big part of his craft as well but it was um, I was really impactful to see people literally like wait what is happening here and then having the opportunity to work with the artist that way I think was illuminating so you have this project is also a way to bring in artists to the Lansing area to share their work but how um, do you engage just like the general public well, we, uh, we ordered 5,000 of these project pop-up flyers. We've been distributing them to businesses. We've been running around downtown. Um, actually, I found out recently that two of our interns were bringing the pop-up project brochures around downtown and met a very special person at City Hall who's going to be bringing students here throughout the summer, um, students that would not have normally entered the gallery. And those are the kinds of things that are very special for us. Um, we have gotten the mayor in, and uh, we're very excited about that as well. I think the more we can increase visibility for the project, the better it is for our artists and the better it is for this community. Great. How often does the gallery attempt to launch these kind of community art engagement type events? So uh, all of our projects ideally are engaging the community. Our, um, our exhibitions that we do bi-monthly have community reception. Mm -hmm. And you can come on Friday night, meet the artist, 
and enjoy hors d'oeuvres and refreshments. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we think that's an amazing time. Um, this is a special project outside of our normal programming, which we have the opportunity to apply for funds once a year. Mm -hmm. And that's um, where you've seen the gallery do City Streets, which was reproductions throughout downtown as well. The sculpture in the park, the, down by the river, the sculpture down by the river, the um, art in the park. And then last year, Art Quest, which was a downtown Lansing scavenger hunt with art. So this is probably one of your first big events where you're really kind of going outside of the gallery, I feel like, just in another way. I want to go back again with how can um, the community get involved with Project Pop-Up? Like, mm -hmm. how can they find more about the different activities they can get involved in, and what are they? It's through August 12th, we have activities. So if, if you're a downtowner and you're already downtown, it's, it's designed to capture that audience. But we're also encouraging people from outside of downtown to come down for these events. Events. It's June 24th's yarn bombing with Jane Ryder. You can come and learn how to yarn bomb a tray and be a part of that. Or um, Kumihimo braid, Japanese braid making on July 8th. Or the puppet workshop on July 22nd. We have a 3D chalk artist coming in in August. And we have a flash finale at the end, which will be very exciting. People, in any of these cases, they can engage in the arts by watching and just experiencing it, but they can also have a hands-on opportunity if they want to participate, learn how to actually create something. So they can also just come to watch the artists do their like street art kind of things? Right, so it's a, it could be a demonstration of sorts and that the artist is there and they're interested in talking with people. We want people to be involved in the arts and it's an open invitation for anyone who, who already knows about the arts, but also for everyone who doesn't know about the arts and wants to be a part of this. If you've always had this inner child that wants to learn how to do pastels, you can come down and learn how to do it with Mary Hartler-Tallman on July 1st. Um, or if, you've, you know, if you just come downtown and experience the arts on the, on the windows, you can see a really beautiful representation of of 16 Michigan artists that have made really beautiful pieces in the mm -hmm. last three years. It's a nice sampling of contemporary artwork. Great. Well, thank you for sitting down with me today, Barb. I really appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck with this project. I'm excited to learn more about it and get involved. Thank you. It's been wonderful. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Coming up next, we head back to the archives to uh, sit down with some of the beer podcasting people that are found right here in Holden Hall. Daniel Rezel. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rezel, and I'm here with Tony Huff and Brandon Manson, who have been collaborating on a podcast on Michigan craft brewing. Thank you for coming in today, and how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Brandon had to come through all the snow and the elements, but he's here. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I had to walk over just five minutes from my dorm to get here, and I, I can't even imagine driving. <laughs> You've got a whole different challenge here with uh, the walking on campus. I, <laughs> That's true. I remember those days quite well and not so fondly. You know, waking up with the snowblowers in the morning, it's, yep. it's, all, a, it's all a great feeling. All you know? the rage. <laughs> and having to guess which, which sidewalks have been plowed, because when you get this much snow, they tend to have to focus on main thoroughfares. That's true. So you'll true. have to adjust yeah. your route until the last minute. Uh, <laughs> So the two of you have been working on this Michigan Craft Brewing podcast. Now, how long have the two of you known each other, and how did that get started? Whoa, that's a that's we, a good question. We have been pretty much best friends since, what, third grade? Third Miss Shansky's class. Yeah, wow. over yeah. at uh, Hazlitt Public Schools. So it's been a 
It's been a long time. We started the show back in 2012. Back in third grade. No. <laughs> <laughs> Michigan Beer Show. Yeah. <laughs> back grade. in third grade. Awesome. 97. Yeah. No. Uh, what? It was uh, 2012, December mm-hmm. of 2012. Uh, we were just sitting. Uh, I think we were having like an Arcadia Ales something. Yeah. Uh, and we were like, this should be the show. Like we were just kind of just going back and forth, talking about different things. Uh, not as educated on beer at that time so you know it was kind of it's like it's a funny thing how you learn so much just by doing something which exactly. is what i tell people all the time like if you want to yeah. learn how to do something just start doing it and like sure. find ways to resources to learn about it but with beer like get a couple of friends who are maybe home brewers or something and just start drinking everything you get your hands on <laughs> and talk in to moderation in yeah, moderation right and talk to bartenders too because yeah. they have you know just a wealth of information and i think yeah that was like one of the things that we did was like really talk to a lot of bartenders people in the, the just the the craft beer business you know and uh, and just east, getting ideas east lansing especially now with hopcat being here mm-hmm. that the culture of that place uh they have really really intense training for everyone that works there because like their thing is craft beer so if you want to learn about um any specific kind of craft beer or just craft beer in general like go hang out there and talk to those bartenders because they know everything there is to know about it now, uh, what can we expect from a typical show? Like, what, what do you guys talk about? Uh, the Besides the obvious, of course. Right, but. right. <laughs> um, you know, it's Tony and I, and recently we've we've been able to rope our friend Max Winkler back in. Um, he was a home brewer, not as much time to do that now, but really, really into it. Um, Very so, knowledgeable. Yeah, about. so anytime we have a question about something we're drinking or a style or anything, we just we'll ask Max about it. Um, other than that, it's just kind of what we've been doing for the last two and a half minutes, just kind of banter and talking. And uh, you know, it's basically if we were sitting at a bar, it, what it's what we would be talking about. But we just have microphones in front of us. Yeah, and I, I guess you know we normally have three beers that we like to showcase. Um, so we're always at least sampling three beers. So in a show, you can expect to see at least at minimum three. Sometimes we can't decide. Because normally what it is is it's either myself or Brandon going out to the party store before, kind of perusing, hey, what have we tried, what haven't we tried? And so, um, but we normally try to do that three-beer format and then maybe throw in another one if we want. Now, uh, online at your website, michiganbeershow.com, I saw that you had a, a rating system of sorts. So, <laughs> so 2 to 14. Yeah. Now, yeah. what? Why two to fourteen? Not one to ten or one the, to five. <laughs> the guy who came up with that is not here. I wish that he were here to really go over that. It's silly, um, and it's not. It's not supposed <laughs> to make any sense. We call it what? It's a likability scale. Yeah, it's, it's very much it, how it's you're highly feeling. non-scientific likability scale. Yeah, um, essentially <laughs> what? It's Max, the guy who kind of came up with it, and he was talking about how you know everyone does one to ten, you know one to one hundred. But let's do something different. Let's do something unique. Two to 14. Just come up with that, and then you base your ratings off that. Um, we've They've tried to change it. I've been the one that's been like, no, we're keeping it. Like, I'm the George Costanza. This is the show, <laughs> and we're not changing it. <laughs> because I had the same exact question. Why is it 2 to 14? Like, when we started, no one was listening to the show, so we just did it because we thought Because we thought funny. it was funny. And, and then people start listening to the show. <laughs> now I'm, I'm afraid people will be super confused <laughs> and, like, be sort of off-put. Like, why why don't you just do it on 1 to 5 or 1 to 10? And I don't know. Nope. It's just kind of what we do, I guess. It's kind, <laughs> yeah. of, kind of your own spin. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. To, sure. It's a likability scale, and um, it changes. It's, it's ever-changing. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, 
it's it's what it whatever it means to you exactly mm-hmm. yeah sure <laughs> now uh, back to your website is that currently the only place where your podcast is available uh at the moment yes um you can subscribe there uh we're working out some issues with iTunes right now, so at some point this spring we will be back on iTunes. Right. But yep. if you want to subscribe to the show or listen to anything, go to our website um, and go ahead and subscribe to that feed, and it'll go right to your iTunes, and it'll download it there. So anytime that we update after that, you'll get a, an update. Right, and we always post on Facebook too, um, so you can find our you know uh, episodes through. Yeah, that. we're pretty. It routes you to Michigan Beer Show. Yep, um, we're pretty active com. there too. So, but yeah, but we're pretty active on Facebook. Before our interview, you discussed the possibility of getting on terrestrial radio. Is there anything you can share about that, or is that kind of under wraps at the moment? Uh, that is pretty much uh, clandestine at the moment, but sure. um, we, we have been in talks uh, to bring the show to terrestrial. So um, I think right now that's all I can say about it. But just Very exciting. Literally stay mm-hmm. tuned. That's yeah. what I will. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Very exciting, though. Yeah, we're, I'm, we're, I'm stoked about it. Yeah, we're learning a lot about just uh, – that process of you know you know what we can do to make that kind of jump yeah we just just the way the show the way the show came about is like why isn't anyone talking about craft beer right back then and i think it's still kind of maintaining that level but it craft beer was exploding yeah it was a boom i mean like we were just getting into i mean what i think the the craftiest beer that we had was oberon at that time yeah you know and now we have gone pretty much all over the state <laughs> trying different beers. Yeah. And we've gone as far as Marquette um, to to visit some breweries. Um, but yeah, like like you were saying, like there was a boom at that time, and so we were just kind of thinking, like, why is nobody, you know, why why isn't there a forum or like just a uh, a spot, you know, for that that voice? Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, why can't we be that? Yeah, and now I think you've kind of seen that with radio stations actually looking for that kind mm-hmm. of programming to kind yeah, of fill a exactly. niche. So it's it's pretty cool and right place, right time. Sure. Now are you are you the only uh Michigan beer podcast out there that you know of or is this the only to... active one. There was a dude doing a podcast mm-hmm. like five years ago that's still up on iTunes, but I don't think he's made a new episode. And then there's some other years. people that are on YouTube um that I've noticed. Um not obviously not a podcast, but they do everything, you know, now and again. Um, we were pretty regular um, from about February of 2013 to about June of 2014, yep. and we're just getting into doing it regularly again. You know, we both got full-time jobs, and you know, kind of, you know, our priorities kind of switched a little bit, but we're starting to get back into that mm-hmm. again. Um, but I think that in terms of being the only like beer podcast or YouTube channel or something, we're probably one of the more regular ones yeah. out there. Sure. Now, earlier you mentioned the, I guess, the boom of mm-hmm. the interest in Michigan craft brewing. What do you think caused that? Or I guess for you guys, why Michigan beer? Why not? What well, what makes us special, you know? Why not I, Michigan beer? <laughs> well, I've, I've got a few uh, hypotheses that I've bandied about. Um, I think you can look back to sort of 2008 with the Great Recession and how hard that hit Michigan. And right around that time... It was a national trend, but especially in Michigan, we started doing that Pure Michigan campaign, and there's a big emphasis that has maintained all the way through till now of buying local and doing things that support your state. So I think there was a big focus on that. And then starting back in the 80s with craft beer with like Sam Adams, um, 
you know, that's kind of just been a, a slowly growing segment of the market and more of an art form. And I think that really started to take off, um, especially in Michigan, because, yeah, we've got people who brew great stuff who've been doing it for a long time. Um, I know Bell's was a big part um, of, of that movement, too. So just as that whole attitude started to manifest itself, I think that's especially in Michigan, that's why it's taking off so well. And we've got uh, Joe Short's got a hop farm up north now. Um, near Bel Air, so they're able to provide locally sourced hops, which is pretty cool too. Um, I work in De- downtown Detroit, and that's we've got I think five or six breweries within five miles of each other, which is pretty cool. Wow, yeah, yeah. I think Brandon touched on it. It's that that pure Michigan movement that we've been seeing, you know, the last you know five years is just people, you know, take a lot of pride in this state, and um, we've got a lot of you know great great people, great artists that are, you know, going out there experimenting with, you know, beer. And I think people are really just kind of taking to that craft, you know, um, kind of recognizing that as the art uh, that it has become and is. Uh, now, have either of you made it over to Holland? Uh, yes. That's where I live. So I was okay. just wondering because I think we have, in the past year, we've opened up two different breweries, sure. just right. right in downtown, one after the other, just right next door yeah. to each other. <laughs> yeah, that whole west. I'm heading out to Grand Rapids after this, actually, and like you, you know, growing up on the west side of the state, you can't throw a cat without hitting a brewery. Uh-huh. Like, it's right. insane. <laughs> yeah, I think the one that we went to in Holland was the New Holland, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was a great, um, great time. You know, the brewery was nice, uh, food was fantastic, and the beer was even better. Uh, <laughs> the beer. Yeah, they the, that it, dragon's milk. I I will contend is mm-hmm. probably one of the better bourbon barrel aged stouts out there. You know, um, that you can at least go out and get. Yeah, I'm just like just on a whim. You know, I'm a big fan of their Hatter series. Oh because yeah, because I feel like that's been a that. really yeah. really creative thing that they've done where they start with the the just the regular Mad Hatter IPA, and now they have this thing like I was talking about with the Michigan hops. They have the Michigan Hatter, which is I think three different hops all grown in Michigan that are mm-hmm. in that IPA, mm-hmm. and it's really, really cool. Um, it's a cool project, and that's my favorite hatter of them all. A, because of the Michigan thing, and B, because it tastes really good. Yeah, <laughs> and you're not an IPA guy. I'm get, I'm, I'm starting there? I'm starting to join the dark side, oh, honestly. Like, okay. that's the last Wait, couple the, months. the dark side as being a stout or just the dark side as in oh, embracing? Sorry. I didn't think about that. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I'm joining the side the hop side yeah that's good that's, that's good. actually that's a good name for beer let's trade yeah. that right now all right we're doing it you're, hop you're, side. you're hop here side. Wait, we got the proof right here right yep here. that's yeah. right <laughs> let the record show <laughs> now earlier so i asked you about you know the i guess the popularity boom of michigan craft brewing but now to you personally why michigan beer what, what makes it special to you to me i think just the fact that it's all brewed here that's the, that's the biggest thing to me, um, you know, being a Michigan native. And that's the, the re- one of the reasons why I work in Detroit, too, is because I really believe in, in the comeback of that city. And when Detroit starts to come back, that's when I think Michigan hits a whole different level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just in general, like supporting the state and the fact that the beer is so good is just sort of a positive side effect that makes it pretty easy to, to commit to that. If working out were that easy, I'd be in much better shape. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's, um, I think it's the people, you know, the people that we've met, we've met a lot of fantastic, hardworking people that, 
you know, say, you know, I quit my job and just kind of went in, you know, I, we're, uh, bad brewing out in Mason. Yeah. You know, the guy was a police officer um, at East Lansing Police Department and at um, Lansing Police Department um, and just decided, hey, I'm going to try this, you know, try making beer, you know, and put himself out there. So to me, it's really the people, you know, the stories you come across, you know, the hardworking guys that are really just trying to make it and they're making fantastic things. Great. Now, uh, just one more question to wrap up today. Could you give me kind of a sample of how you would open up one of your podcasts? Just kind of do, I guess, uh, sure. a, 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 <clears throat> improv right now. Uh, you know? Improv. Oh, All nice. Right. All right. Man, I wish I had How now, here. brown cow? Yeah. How now, brown cow? <laughs> mm. Mm, yes. The arsonist had webbed feet. Uh, all right. Do you yeah. want me to do the uh, the intro? <laughs> no, I don't want you to do the intro. I do the intro. <laughs> uh, no, I'm saying the the beginning music to no, no, it. No, no, we're good. We'll skip that. Well, all right. I will not, that that's just remind me of another question, actually. Oh. Do you guys have any, I guess, kind of traditions when you warm up for a show? <laughs> we. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> can we disclose that, Brandon? <laughs> yeah, we can disclose. That. Well, generally what happens is I get everything set up and these guys just drink beer and watch me do it. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll have like a warm-up beer sometimes, so it's something we're not going to do on the show, but they're like, hey, check this out. And it'll be like, I don't know, something weird from Bells or something like that. Yeah. So we'll do that and just kind of like get into the flow. Uh, and then we'll just do it. So we'd play the intro music, and then I would say something like, uh, uh, oh, shoot, what do I say? Oh, come on, you got this. <laughs> <I know. clears throat> Happy Friday. Welcome in. Thank you for joining us, Michigan Beer Show. Tony Huff alongside me. And uh, we've got some uh, got some good stuff today. What are we going to do? Oh, you know, Brandon, I always go out and get some great stuff. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, New Holland Dragon's Milk tonight. Uh, haven't done that in a while, so we're going to see the difference that we've had in the last couple of years. I got a Founders. You know, I love Founders. Uh, that's the Black Rye. Um, I've only had it a couple times. Uh, have you had that one before? I have had that. Uh, they had it on tap locally okay. at one of my establishments I frequent. Nice. And uh, it's good stuff, man. I'm excited to do it. Yeah, and then we're going to wrap up with the Hop Slam. Uh, it's been a big, uh, big year for Hop Slam. A lot of people are excited, saying that it's a lot different than uh, years past. So yeah. we'll good thing we're that. gonna warm up with an eight percent work our way up to ten. <laughs> no, it's a, made that choice. Well, you know, Dragon's Milk is eleven percent, so uh, we'll we're Super. gonna we're gonna finish strong. No, this is gonna that? be an entertaining episode. Everybody, <laughs> buckle in. Oh, I know, right? That's how the show would go. <laughs> oh, yeah. excellent work. Now, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about anything we talked about today? Mm. Uh, just uh, if you're looking. To get into craft beer and you're sort of leery about it, I know particularly in a college campus, might be more fond of something a bit lighter, perhaps a little more natural and light, may I say. Mm -hmm. uh, don't do that. I would say just move right into the craft beer. You'll be much happier uh, in the future. Um, but don't be afraid to try new stuff. Mm -hmm. Like A lot of times you can just get a taste and, and you won't really know what you like until you until you try something. So. As far as craft beer goes, that's that's really what I had to say. Now, uh, just a quick recap. Where can listeners find your show online at the moment? You can uh, go to michiganbeershow.com, click on the subscribe link, and that will take you to your iTunes and put that feed in there. And then anytime we update, it'll be in your iTunes. And I believe we're also up on Stitcher Radio, so you can hear us there too. All right. Well, Tony and Brandon, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. We are almost done with the show tonight, but before we ended it, we decided to pay homage to our ex-station manager, Gabriella Saldivia. Currently, she's in Washington, D.C., interning at Morning Edition for NPR, and uh, she's really near and dear to all of our hearts here at the station. So 
Uh, here's a story she did last year um, about zines and feminism. Abby Heath and Caroline Caswell like to make zines. You find out about zines and then you read one and then you're like, oh my gosh, like, I could do this. That was Caroline. She explains that a zine is a self-published magazine used to share ideas through photos and writings. I curated this exhibit called Print Party, celebrating queer feminisms through zines. Basically, it's an exhibition to highlight zinesters who are non-cisgender males. Cisgender means that the gender identity assigned to a person at birth is the gender that that person identifies with. Caroline and Abby's exhibit, held at the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame in Lansing, aimed to show off the work of people who do not fit in this definition. Usually in exhibitions or just in general in society, those voices are cast to the side. But the exhibit wasn't all serious. My name is Spencer Perriner. I'm reading Left Hand Lenore, Volume 1. Uh, it looks like a series of journal entries about Lenore uh, learning to write with her left hand, and it's pretty hilarious. Moments of reflection came when zinesters read their work aloud. I was relieved that my roommate wasn't home. It fit snugly and flattened up my chest, though maybe not so much as I had hoped or expected. Abby says the zine community is already pretty inclusive, but there is still work that can be done. We definitely wanted to create um, an environment that um, was an even safer space for people who um, don't identify as cisgender mm -hmm. males, essentially. Caroline and Abby look forward to curating more events like this one and spreading the word that anyone can make a zine. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. That's going to wrap up our show for tonight. You can find this episode as well as all other episodes of Exposure on our website at impact89fm.org. Special thanks tonight to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Sammy, our assistant news director, Audrey Matus, and uh, ex-impactors, Alsha Clausen and Gabriela Saldivia. Good luck to you both. Uh, you've been listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM, and I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.